welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. This is not a particularly easy or fun passage on which to preach. As a preacher, one always likes to give a message of happiness and leave the audience with warm fuzzies. But this passage forces us to consider some hard realities. The rich man is suffering in Hades and begging for mercy that Father Abraham is unable to offer. Jesus does not fit our typical mold of buddy Jesus here. He's talking about some very weighty matters. However, the lectionary keeps us honest. As you know, each week there's a reading assigned for both the epistle and the gospel during the service. And the lectionary we use is very old. And there have been many moderating restructurings of the lectionary, and it's not infrequent that passages like these have been replaced with alternatives, or there are alternatives offered alongside the traditional reading to make it easier on us preachers and our audiences. This is one of those passages because it doesn't jive well with our modern sensibilities. However, we have to hear its message whether we want to or not because it's important that we don't cherry-pick our gospel lest we miss the full story. And this passage isn't alone. This passage is very consistent with many others in the Bible, one of which we also are forced to read in the lectionary is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I quote, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say on those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And they will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away and in, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those are definitely tough words from Jesus, and that can invoke quite a bit of fear in our hearts, and they should. However, in both the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew, and the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which we just read from Luke, we see several important parallels that underscores several things about which we have spoken over the last few weeks. The most important parallel in these messages is that of these seemingly tough love passages is that God judges us by our actions towards our neighbors. We must have selfless love towards our neighbor if we expect to inherit the kingdom of God, something that we've constantly had as part of our message over the last few weeks. So let's not forget that, because if one remembers nothing else from this sermon, that will without a doubt lead to your salvation. But let's dig a little deeper into this passage and see what else we can learn from it. 
It's very interesting that the beggar is named in this passage. You're not going to find another parable like that. So one must try to understand why the character is named. I think there are several possible reasons. First, by naming the beggar, he's given greater dignity in the story, while the rich man remains unnamed. If you've helped someone on the street who's begging for handouts, how often do you ask their name? Which is probably one of the first pleasantries you would exchange with anyone else you met during the routine of your day. This is perhaps part of the point of naming Lazarus. Second, I think the naming of this individual in the story was to tell the hearers that they are not to think for a moment that they are the poor man in the story. When he's named, it prevents you from associating yourself with him because he's not talked about in general terms. And finally, a possible reason is that Lazarus' name means God is my help. Here the function of such a name is obvious since Lazarus relies only on God for what he has since the rich man has not provided it. This last reason is likely important to the story as it was originally told in the hearing of the Pharisees because I think there's a very specific purpose at the time this story was told. There are many reasons to believe that the rich man represents the Pharisees, the Jews, and that Lazarus represents the Gentiles. Lazarus likely represents Gentiles, first of all because of the dogs licking his wounds. We see dogs frequently associated with other Gentiles in the New Testament. For example, Jesus calls the Canaanite woman a dog, as you recall. And another tricky passage to preach on, I have to admit. But also note that, that, that the dog parallel isn't the only parallel with the story of the Canaanite woman. The other one is that Lazarus longs to be fed with that which falls from the rich man's table. Anyway, if you look throughout the Bible, dogs are not reflected in a very positive light. And you may not think that licking Lazarus' wounds is positive, but I beg to differ. It shows that the dogs care for Lazarus. They're treating Lazarus better than the rich man. That's quite an indictment to him. And this also makes a lot of sense in that Abraham calls the rich man son indicating that he is indeed Abraham's son, at least by blood. But critically, Lazarus, who may not be Abraham's son by blood, has the place of prominence because he actually has the true faith in God that Abraham carries. Oh yeah, and so what is this Abraham's bosom stuff? Abraham's bosom reflects a practice during Second Temple Judaism where there was the practice of reclining and eating meals in proximity with other guests the closest of whom physically was said to lie on the bosom of the host. You'll also recall this from St. John's Gospel, where the beloved disciple is said to be laying on Jesus' bosom. It may also reflect the universal custom of parents to take up into their arms or place upon their knees their children when they are fatigued or return home, and to make them rest by their side during the night, causing them to enjoy rest and security in the bosom of a loving parent. After the same manner, Abraham was supposed to act towards his children after the fatigues and troubles of the present life. Hence, he, that was the metaphorical expression to be in Abraham's bosom, as meaning to be in repose and happiness with him. And this came to refer, came to, refer to a place of comfort in Sheol, or Hades, the place of the dead, for those deserving it while awaiting the resurrection and judgment in Judaism, while the rich man is in the fiery part for those who were not. 
During the second temple period, roughly 500 before Christ to 70 after him, the concept of a bosom of Abraham first occurs in Jewish papyri that refer to the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This reflects the belief of Jewish martyrs who died, expecting that after our death, in this fashion, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will receive us, and all our forefathers will praise us. That comes from 4th Maccabees. Other early Jewish works adapt the Greek mythical picture of Hades to identify the righteous dead as being separated from the unrighteous in the fires by a river or chasm. In the pseudo-epigraphical pseudo Apocalypse of Zephaniah, the river has a ferryman equivalent to Charon in the Greek myth, but replaced by an angel. On the other side, in the bosom of Abraham, quote, you have escaped from the abyss in Hades, now you will cross over to the crossing place, to all the righteous ones, namely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Enoch, Elijah, and David. In this story, Abraham was not idle in the bosom of Abraham. He acted as intercessor for those in the fiery part of Hades. One of the most striking contrasts between the version I was just describing and the one we hear Jesus tell is that there's no river that can be crossed from the cool part to the fiery part and vice versa. Instead, it's said that there's a great and fixed chasm. In the interpretation we're discussing, the Pharisees are on one side and the Gentiles are on the other. And it's turned out exactly the opposite of the way the Pharisees expected it to. They have been unfaithful with the riches God has given them. This passage also has really strong parallels to Romans chapter 2. And don't forget that the Gospels were written after Paul's letters. So what was included in the Gospels was very likely influenced by Paul's writings. Hear from Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you, the Jews, into repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are seeking and do not obey the truth, who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So with that, I think that was the primary message Jesus was trying to convey to his hearers. He was trying to get the Pharisees to wake up and realize that what matters is not knowing the law, those great riches provided by God, but using those riches for good. So instead of some deep cosmologic discussion, I think this parable was told for a certain time and place to be understandable to those who were hearing it at the time. And we always need to keep that in mind 
that that's usually the function of what we read and hear in the Bible. And thus, I don't think we should actually be trying to infer much of anything about Shales, Hades, heaven, and hell from passages like this. We're merely told, these were merely told in terms that people at the time could understand. And yet one of the notable things about the Bible is that despite it being written for another people at another time, it's timeless and has a message for us today as fresh as it did a thousand years ago. So beyond speaking to the Jews of the time, what does this passage have to offer us? Well, first, as we've already noted, it serves as a harsh reality that we too often prefer to ignore the simple fact that we will be judged by our actions. Not by the things we say we believe, not by what we know, but by what we do. Second, although this passage seems very harsh, there is hope to be heard in the passage. One of the striking differences, as I mentioned, between the cosmology and the fiery part of Hades and Abraham's bosom in, in the Jewish description is the great chasm between the two parts. Remember, in the Jewish version, there was this river that could be crossed between the parts, and angels could carry you across. Reading the story in retrospect, after the resurrection of Christ, we are to recognize that it is Christ himself that bridges that chasm. He is the one who can carry us from one side to the other, from death to life, from torment to refreshment. Follow him and you will be carried by your Christ-like actions across the gulf, separating you from Abraham, whose faith, again, it isn't just belief in our hearts, that faith, recall Abraham acted on that faith, being willing to sacrifice his own son and many other acts. But through that faith, you will be saved. And finally, I believe there's hope because I see the rich man hasn't really changed after all these torments. He is indeed there for a reason, and God's justice is fair. Some in history have seen the rich man's call for Lazarus to be sent to warn his brothers as some warming of his heart, some kind of mercy. And there is no doubt a certain truth in that. But that mercy really isn't for his neighbor only for his family. And I see in the story overall that the rich man treats Lazarus in death just as he did before they ended up in different parts of Sheol. In each instance, the rich man is asking for Lazarus to serve him, to dip his finger in and bring him some water, to go and warn his brothers. The rich man is as selfish in death as he was in life. He just wants to be taken out of the torments, and he wants Lazarus to do it for him. If he wasn't, perhaps he could cross that chasm with the help of Christ. And while we do believe that what we do in this life is consequential to our eternal place, we also pray for the dead, that God will have mercy on them, that they will come to wisdom, as it doesn't appear this rich man has in those torments, and that we will also be able to approach in faith the great and final judgment. This also reminds me of a par the parable of the onion told in Dostoevsky's masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. I wasn't very good at Russian. Anyway, once there was a wicked old peasant woman. She died without a single good deed to recommend her, so in the next world she was cast into the lake of fire by the devils with all the rest of her kind. Up in heaven, her guardian angel was not content to let the old woman's story end so sadly. He racked his brain to try and remember a single good deed the woman might have committed. He was hoping he could recall a single instance of selflessness or pity or piety or anything resembling virtue. And at last the guardian angel remembered that the woman had once pulled up an onion out of her garden and given it to a beggar in need. With that, the angel flew up to God to petition for the release of the old woman. 
Oh, Lord, don't let this woman suffer a second longer, the angel cried out. She really can be quite selfless. Why, once she gave a passing beggar an onion out of her very own garment. God answered, take that very same onion with you then to the lake of fire and hold it out to the old woman. If she takes hold of the onion and you are able to pull her out, then she may join the saints here in heaven. However, if the onion breaks and the woman falls back in, she must carry her sentence into eternity. The emboldened angel flew with the onion as fast as his wings could take him where the old woman was suffering her torment. Grab hold of this onion, he called to the woman, and I will pull you out. The old woman grabbed hold of the onion, and the angel began very carefully pulling the old woman out. When the other sinners saw that she was being delivered, they rushed towards the woman and began to grab hold of her legs and hoped that they too would be delivered. But the woman saw them holding on to her as she was finally hovering above the lake, and her heart was filled with contempt for them. This is my onion, she shrieked, and no one else's. No one is being saved today but me. So she began kicking violently and swinging her body to shake the sinners off so they would fall back into the flames. And as she did this, the onion broke, and the wicked old woman fell back into the lake of fire where she burns to this day. Her guardian angel floated above her with the broken onion. He said not a word, but only wept. Now whenever anyone breaks an onion, they too weep, though they may not know why. They weep for an old wretched woman who could not be saved by her one good deed. So in the end, we have a little idea what the afterlife is truly like. And we should not spend much time worrying about it. We know only what little has been revealed, and that basically we shouldn't focus on avoiding hell, but on doing good. Then you have nothing to worry about. We know that God has mercy, mercy beyond our wildest expectations. And we also have no idea how that mercy will play out. Perhaps even if we end up in the fiery part of Sheol, God will too offer us one of our onions. And hopefully we will have our hearts softened enough to bring ourselves and others to salvation with us, unlike the old woman. Perhaps even as rich men and women, we will have softened our hearts not to only think of ourselves, but of others. Because if we focus on others and not ourselves, we'll be walking with Jesus. And that's the meaning of loving your neighbor as yourself. Not doing for them what you want done the way you want it done, but doing for them what they want done the way they want it done. Let me say that again. Loving your neighbor as yourself is not doing for them what you want done the way you want it done, but doing for them what they want done the way they want it done. It's being so selfless that you're acting as them, not as yourself. Let us commit again ourselves to doing this in the coming week and beyond. Guard ourselves against any selfish actions. And through it, find repose in this life and the next. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.